Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. DDoS, or distributed denial of service attacks, remain a live threat to businesses of all sizes, to government sites and even NGOs and charities. The attacks are easy to launch, cheap or sometimes even free, and can cause serious disruption to their victims. Security firm NetScout runs one of the largest monitoring projects for DDoS. This gives security professionals an up-to-date picture of the size, duration and also the targets of these attacks. There have been some interesting shifts over the last 6 to 12 months in the pattern of DDoS attacks, as the impact of the pandemic has largely been replaced by the focus on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Richard Hummel is Threat Intelligence Lead at NetScout. He was last a guest on Security Insights back in 2021, so we asked him to drill down into the latest research. I started by asking him to recap on how his team monitors DDoS activity around the world. The collectively, uh, all of the stuff that we're bringing into NetScout, we call ATLAS. Um, it's a long acronym. Um, it's essentially um, active Le- threat level analysis system. So hopefully you can remember that, but we call it ATLAS for short. Um, we do have a, a little website where you can go to to f- learn more about ATLAS, but we call all of our collections ATLAS collectively. Um, and what that entails is homegrown assets that we have all over the world, but it's also all of our products. Um, Our customers, when they purchase our products, they have the option to send us statistical data back, typically anonymized data. So we're not actually seeing what the customer's uh, footprint is, but they'll send us attack statistics. So so we know when an adversary is reaching out to them, we know the attacking IP addresses, we know what kind of protocols, what kind of traffic there is. Um, And so a lot of the collection that we get, in fact, the primary collection that we get is from our customers, both enterprise and service providers alike. And so we're getting in just reams and reams of data um, and it's not a periodic thing. It's an always ongoing real-time um, collection platform. And so from enterprises and from service providers, we're talking always constantly getting collection from these devices. And then from our homegrown assets, it's it's real-time. As soon as we see some adversary touching one of our honeypots or, or one of our what we call passive listeners that's sitting out there looking for anomalous traffic, that's instantaneous. As soon as it happens, we have access to it. And so this is kind of an ongoing process. All of this information that we get collectively is what goes into the threat report. Every facet of that, from an enterprise perspective, from a service provider perspective, even looking at just the honeypots and passive listeners and figure out, are there automated tools and bots out there doing malicious things? Um, So maybe it's not one particular adversary, maybe, you know what, maybe an adversary deployed something and they totally forgot that they have it running and it's still out there exploiting things, but we want to know about that as well. Um, And so this is where we get all of our information and what we use to generate the threat report. For the most part, we do this twice a year. Now this format that we've done for this one is very different than what we've done in the past. Um, So normally we'll have like this high level threat report, 40 pages, um, and that will cover everything from global down, a little bit of region, a little bit of country, um, some specific areas that we're going to deep dive. But we actually changed it this time because what we quickly realized is that a lot of our readers are interested in the local perspective. They want to understand what's happening in their countries, in their regions. Um, And so we've changed the format here where now we have um, a, a very custom narrative for each region 
And then we also have four deep dive topics that go into things like adversary methodology or botnets. Um, and so it's a little bit different structure this time. So it's not one report. It's more like eight reports um, that we've done this past um, cycle. So we can look into those in a moment, but just to get the top level statistics in front of the audience, uh, for the benefit of listeners, you've seen a very small decrease, and this is a year-on-year decrease, is it, you're talking about? So the current report covers January 1st, 2022 to June 30th, 2022. And yes, that, that decrease is, is year over year, looking at the entirety of the year. And that's primarily because at the start of 2021, we were still in record numbers as a result of the pandemic fueling uh, cyber attacks. And so naturally that is gonna be weighted much heavier than the last part of the year. If we were looking at just the second half of 2021 to the first half of 2022, there's not a whole lot of movement there. Um, so it's really just kind of that that one, you know, first few months of 2021 that skewed those results quite a bit. So we've got just over 6 million DDoS attacks then in the period and we're seeing an increase in the bandwidth or the maximum bandwidth of the attacks to 958 gigabits per second but then we're seeing a reasonably noticeable decrease of the throughput for these attacks so could you put some context around that those raw figures what does that actually mean for a CISO trying to secure their organization so one thing to keep in mind here when we report numbers we're reporting on only the numbers in which we saw the totality of an attack. But you have to understand how DDoS works. DDoS is very distributed. And so we don't have 100% saturation of all of our collection devices around the world. And so we might see portions of other attacks that maybe exceed one terabit per second or exceed you know 300 million packets per second. But we're not going to report those as solid numbers. In fact, we won't even report those as the lar largest numbers that we've seen because we're not confident that we saw the entirety of the attack. And so the numbers that you're seeing here, 6 million, just over 6 million attacks, the 957 point something gigabits per second, and then the, the hundreds, of, a couple hundred million packets per second, those are attacks that we saw in total. In other words, they were probably destined to one of our customers and we saw the entire attack coming distributed from all over the world. And so there's been other articles out there, um, other uh, folks in the industry that I've talked about two, three terabit per second attacks. We see parts of those, but again, because they're not our customer and because we're not in the full chain of the attack cycle, we're not going to report on those. Um, and so that's a little bit of a frame of reference. Now, putting that in, into context for what's happening in the threat landscape here, suffice to say that terabit per second attacks are the norm. It used to be we would see one or two of them uh, come in year over year. It started to ramp up a little bit. Um, a year and a half ago, we reported about three or four different ones. Last year, there was a little bit more. Um, now it's pretty much the norm. We're seeing terabit per second attacks pretty frequently. Um, in fact, I would say almost weekly, we see some attack that achieves one terabit per second because of just the amplification factor um, of attacks. Now, packets per second is a little bit different. Um, there's a lot of different ways in which you can generate throughput or what we would call speed. And so, the, you know, 284 million packets per second, that's a lot to handle. Um, you'll hear about other articles that talk about requests per second. Um, so go back last year and we talked about this Maris botnet doing 17.2 million requests per second. Well, a request is essentially three packets. 
And so we would say instead of 17.2 million, it's right around 50 to 60 million packets per second um, because that's a back and forth exchange of packets. Um, so a little bit different context there. So just you know, to, to get some of the nomenclature and, and stuff out of the way, um, when we talk about millions of packets per second, we're talking about singular packets. If there's requests per second, that's essentially three packets. And so you would you would multiply that by three. So drawing from that then, what are you seeing? Are you seeing an increase in attack severity rather than necessarily an increase in the number of attacks? I think you nailed it. Um, it's hard to put the term severity around something because what we're really looking at here is a, is a shifting of the scales here. Um, let's go all the way back to the beginning of the internet. Some of the very first DDoS attacks that we ever saw were TCP-based. Um, that was the protocol to use. That was where attacks happened. Um, and then you know we went into this huge, long life cycle of volumetric reflection amplification stuff. But what we're seeing now is that security practitioners, service providers, have figured out fairly easy ways to mitigate this volumetric problem. Now, maybe not everybody, maybe not end users, maybe not smaller organizations, but a lot of these service providers, you know what, they realize I can do some very simple things to get rid of this volumetric piece. So an adversary has to think about that and say, well, how do I continue to attack successfully, take down my opponents, if that attack vector is no longer something that I can use? And so what we're seeing here is, you know, we, we experienced this long period of volumetric attacks where they just were dominant, reigning supreme. That's no longer the case. In fact, if you look at the global threat landscape now, you're going to see all of the TCP attacks, TCP being connection-oriented, in other words, establishing that three-way handshake, those are going to be on top. And what that means is that a lot of adversaries are getting wise to the fact that we can't do this volumetric anymore because security measures. They've also realized that, hey, if I use TCP connections, the initial connections look valid. They look legitimate. And so they can get some of their attack traffic through before countermeasures or mitigations are in place. And so more and more adversaries are using these as their preferred tool. In fact, most of these things are perpetrated by botnets. Botnets, that's what they do. They, their primary attack vector is using TCP-related attacks. Now, that's not to say they can't do other things, but botnets typically use TCP direct path. In other words, the IP address that it's attacking a victim is the IP address that's compromised by that particular bot or malware or whatever it might be. And so that's what we're seeing, these TCP-based attacks. Now, what that does to this defense side is that the TCP connections initially look valid, which means you have to have a little bit more rigorous security and countermeasures in place to detect when things are anomalous or when things change. Thresholds don't always work because sometimes these TCP attacks stay under threshold that might otherwise get tripped from volumetric attacks. And so you have to really think hard about, well, do I set thresholds or do I use other anomalous things to be able to detect this attack traffic? And so all of this has the net effect of making it harder on defenders to be able to recognize and quickly mitigate these things. And on the adversary side, it has a net effect of being more successful. And so naturally, we see adversaries continue to double down on this. And in fact, a lot of the more recent prominent attacks that we've seen, uh, websites going down, government organizations, websites being targeted, those are largely TCP-based attacks sourced from botnets because they're succeeding in getting through some of these first-level mitigations. So we shouldn't draw too much in the way of reassurance then from a slight decrease in the number of attacks. No, we should not. Uh, and that's the nature of the, the cybersecurity landscape, just because there's not as much noise does not mean it's not as not a risk. Um, and, and no matter what threat you're talking about, it could be DDoS, it could be ransomware, it could be nation state, 
the absence of activity is sometimes more concerning because you don't know what's out there looking in the waters, right? It's like being in an ocean and not realizing there's a shark swimming 10 feet below you because you can't see it. Um, and then that's really the security landscape is like, we have to constantly think about these edge cases and defenders jobs are much harder because we have to think about securing everything. Adversary only needs to get through one time. Indeed. So you've broken this down then into four sections, and it's probably worth spending a moment before we look at the geography and looking at those four sections. So the first section is war, religion and politics. The second section is adaptive DDoS attacks. A third is evolution of the adversarial methods and vectors. And then the fourth one is looking at botnets. So I don't know if you want to just walk through those, but uh, why did you pick, uh, maybe in your own words, actually, I'll get you to explain this. Um, could you tell us what the four headlines are and why you chose them? I think the first one that you talked about is, is a no-brainer, right? War, religion and politics and how it impacts the cyber world. I think the whole world is tuned to this right now. Um, and the thing that sparked this off is largely the, the Russian and the Ukrainian conflict. And the very first salvo that happened was DDoS attacks knocking websites offline. And they made national news, international news. They were all over the headlines for multiple days. Um, and that's really kind of what kicked these things off. In fact, the DDoS attacks happened before ground invasion happened. And so it, it put a spotlight on this. And so we, we've put a couple of blogs out already on this, but if we're looking at an entire six month period of time, it was prudent of us to say, you know what, let's look at this from a holistic point. Let's not focus on just Russia, Ukraine. Let's expand the scope globally. Did this impact more than just Russia, Ukraine? And the answer is absolutely, yes, it did. So I won't dig into details here in case we want to dig into it a little bit later, but it, it was just something that we had to do. There was no question whatsoever that we were going to do a piece on how sociopolitical, um, economics, um, geopolitical, even even sporting events, major sporting events like the Super Bowl, the Olympics, um, big events like Rio Carnival, like these things have an impact on the cyber world because adversaries are going to take advantage of these massive events to exploit people. And they're going to try to use it as a method to be able to generate income and revenue for themselves. Or they just want to make a splash and they want to showboat. And so let's go after something very visible, very public. And then they're going to brag about it on Twitter or underground forums. And, hey, look what I did. Um, and so that's why we chose that topic. Now, when we get into um, adaptive DDoS and DDoS suppression, um, we've been throwing the term around there, adaptive DDoS now for almost a year. Um, go back several blogs, even the last share report. Um, one of our peers just recently put something out there about uh, adaptive DDoS mitigating against it. Um, and it's something that we've been really tracking because what it means essentially is adversaries are constantly innovating. They're constantly changing. This, this whole uh, phenomena of switching from volumetric to TCP-based attacks that I just talked about, that's adapting. Adversaries are absolutely understanding and realizing what security measures we're putting in place, and they're changing things very, very rapidly, very quickly. But it's not enough for us to just continue to do what we're doing. We as security practitioners absolutely have to adapt as well. We have to take it a step further. Not only do we have to adapt to what the adversary is doing and change what we're doing, we need to figure out ways to suppress attacks in general. And so let's look at it from a DDoS perspective. You have DDoS attacks that are coming inbound, right? That's predominantly what most people are going to mitigate against. They want to stop the inbound DDoS attacks from taking down their networks. Well, what about service providers where most of these devices, most of these reflectors, amplifiers are sitting inside their networks? They're just as liable for the outbound traffic. In fact, some, some ISPs actually have to pay for the outbound traffic. And so if they have devices inside their networks that are being abused to launch these attacks, why wouldn't they want to stop those? 
if we can identify these, which we can with threat intelligence, and we can let our service provider customers know, hey, you've got all of these things, legitimate devices, legitimate users, but they're compromised or they have vulnerabilities that allow them to be amplifying traffic, then let's tell them about these so they can identify these, they can sequester those, and they can suppress the attack before it ever reaches critical mass. And so the idea here is let's stop the outbound and the crossbound DDoS attacks in addition to the inbound. And that's the idea of DDoS suppression. And so we really want to get this message out there. It's happening right now. There's lots of different service providers that are implementing some of these things. Um, there's uh, think groups out there in the community where they're talking about these things. How do we do this? How do we adapt our practices? How do we do suppression? And so this is an ongoing thing. And we're bringing awareness of this about what we're doing and our thoughts around this. When we talk about the different types of DDoS attacks. We already talked about a couple volumetric and then the TCP-based attacks, but we also have methodologies that adversaries employ. And so this is the third section. We talk about a new DDoS attack vector that came out. In fact, a DDoS attack vector that has the largest amplification factor on record. Um, then we also talk about two different methodologies that adversaries have been using, one called carpet bombing, and the other one is DNS water torture. Now, carpet bombing is essentially, instead of targeting one IP address, I'm going to go after an entire slash 24. So I'm going to go after hundreds or even thousands of IP addresses that this customer owns. And then I'm going to send a little bit of traffic to each one. And so I'm never going to trip a threshold because I'm not exceeding a certain traffic limit. I'm going to saturate all of these pipes with a little bit of traffic. And so that the systems handling these things can't process all of the requests fast enough. So that's carpet bombing. DNS water torture says, let's go after the application layer. In other words, I'm going to go after a web server and I'm going to send it a bunch of bogus DNS requests, a bunch of subdomains that don't exist. And so the adversary is constantly sending these things and the web server eventually figures out none of these exist, but I still have to respond. And so it starts to slow down and slow down before it eventually stops. Um, that's that idea. Uh, another methodology that we talk a little bit about that we talked about last time was HTTP pipelining, essentially the adversary is sending a bunch of web requests, but they they hold all of those. So let's generate 10,000 requests and then release them all at once. And so then it floods a web server and tries to take it down. That's what happened with some of the prominent uh, websites that went down last year from the Maris botnets. And that brings us to the fourth section, botnets. Um, and we talk about botnets because of this changing, um, the, this shifting of the guard, if you will, with volumetric and TCP-based attacks, if most of those are perpetrated by botnets, we need to put a spotlight and a lens on what's happening in the botnet space. And so we talk about how we're tracking those, what we're tracking, how many different nodes came online in a short period of time. Uh, botnets are rapidly expanding, and they're not just expanding to IoT devices like they used to. They're expanding to server-grade server hardware. They're going to data centers. They're looking at high-powered routers sitting in really high-capacity networks. And so all of this is coming together to create this uh, convergence of adversary shifting methodology, as well as capabilities being increased to be able to wreak havoc across the internet. So if we were to draw that together, then what does that mean for the security posture of organizations? Are, are we seeing more risks? Are we seeing DDoS threats that are going to be harder to suppress? I think we're seeing a little bit of everything. Uh, one, we're getting better about some areas, like the volumetric stuff, we're figuring out what we need to do to get rid of those. Um, but we also have to focus on the other side where adversaries are gonna shift their tactics to be able to get around what we just changed. And that's been the story for decades. Every single time we do a security method, adversary innovates. In fact, let's just look at the Cloudflare CAPTCHA, right? I, I guarantee everybody that's been on the internet has 
experience the point where it says Cloudflare is checking your site or you have to click a button, right? And you have to get through a capture screen. Um, that's a, a preventative measure for DDoS because you don't want to bombard that web server with requests. You want it to be able to process those properly. Well, adversaries, as soon as those started coming out, they started developing ways to get around that. And so if you go to any of the DDoS for hire platforms, they'll have different attack methods specifically to get around those capture pages. And so they have ways to be able to DDoS despite having some sort of countermeasure mitigation in place for these websites. And so because of adversary adapting, um, this is an ongoing process, right? It's, it's not that we're getting worse or we're getting better. We're all moving kind of in parallel. And so it's something that we always have to be vigilant. We always have to be thinking about new ways to mitigate these. And I think DDoS suppression is going to go a long way there because if we can stop the attacks, we don't have to worry about changing how we mitigate them or how we do countermeasures. We're just stopping them in general. And so I think threat intelligence plays a huge role here. And that's really a, one of the fundamental reasons why we do this threat intelligence report or reports in this case is that we want to get the security awareness out there. We want to tell the rest of the world about what adversaries are doing, how they're leveraging attacks, how they're attacking uh, different organizations, different countries. And that's important too, because countries and regions, they're not all alike. You can't look at global stats and understand what's happening in Latin versus EMEA. It's very different. There's different industries targeted. There's different folks that fall in the top 10. And so you have to look at things from a regional and a localized perspective to be able to figure out what are adversaries doing in my space and what do I need to do to be able to counter those. And you know what, if it's a lot of botnets operating in my region, then I should be looking at threat intelligence that tells me what bots are operating there. If it's a lot of volumetric attacks, well, I need to figure out where the reflectors amplifiers are. And so I need to be looking at threat intelligence that tells me where those are. And then I can put those into my security stack and I can start, start to suppress those. And I can put uh, checks and balances in place that says, hey, if all of these reflectors amplifiers in my network kick off at once, or maybe like a percentage of those kick off, and all of a sudden it's generated about a lot of outbound traffic, I need to throttle that. So as a service provider, I can look at that and say, hey, here's how I'm going to suppress the attack. I'm going to stop this from happening. And then that way, the person that's defending against those has a lot less traffic to deal with. And so it's, it's, a, it's a battle on both sides here. And it's a battle that every single person that uses the internet has to be involved in. Um, service providers, I think, are at the core of that, but enterprises are not off the hook because a lot of the attacks, especially bot-related attacks, predominantly go after the enterprise. And so enterprises need to be vigilant here and making sure that they are understand what kind of attacks come from botnets, largely the TCP-based stuff, and having devices and mitigation tools in place where they can then defend against those. Now, we don't have time, unfortunately, to go through all of the regions, but I think uh, the EMEA region is the one that we probably should be looking at. And that has seen an increase in the number of attacks. And given what you've already said about the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, it's unsurprising that we've seen an increase in DDoS activity. And it's 1.8 million attacks in the, uh, the first half of this year as the headline figures. Um, so unpicking that a little bit, what can you tell us about what's happening in EMEA at the moment or what has happened in the last six months? So, I mean, I think that the main thing here is the invasion into Ukraine. Um, prior to the invasion, most of the EMEA was relatively flat. Um, every now and then you'll see a spike, typically when it relates to something that's happening in the real world, some, some political events, some election somewhere. Um, it happens often. But with the invasion into Ukraine, um, really the attack landscape changed very significantly. Um, and so let's back up a little bit. It started with Finland. So right when Russia was um, talking about, hey, we're, we're probably going to do something about Ukraine, staging assets, doing practices, 
uh, Finland started to say, hey, you know what? Uh, I think it's time that we rediscuss joining in NATO. And a lot of that discussion was prompted by what Russia was doing against Ukraine. And so as soon as they made that those rumors and those different articles started coming out, DDoS attacks jumped by about 2x against Finland. Then Russia invades. Attacks against Ukraine spiked. Attacks against Finland spiked because a couple of days after the invasion, the Finland government comes out and says, okay, now we actually have to join NATO. And they basically reaffirmed their decision and said, this is going to happen. Um, and you can actually see as those attacks continue to ramp up, Finland at some point got 4x the normal amount of attacks on a sustained basis for many uh, several months. If you look at Ukraine, the first uh, couple of weeks, two, three weeks, um, attacks just skyrocketed. And they were against websites, they're against financial organizations. But you know who else had attacks against them is Russia. Russia, Russia had a 3x increase in the amount of daily attacks they were getting from all over the place. Um, activists, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, maybe some other nation states or maybe uh, various groups that are affiliated with DDoS, um, just bombarding them, primarily going after government sites, media sites, financial organizations, very similar to what happened with uh, the start of the invasion with Ukraine. Um, and so that those attacks sustained 3x increase from for several months. And even now, today, it's still like a 2x increase over where they were prior to the invasion. So things are still happening. Now, some other countries that factor in here is Ireland. So as infrastructure started to go down in Ukraine, and as um, the stability of that internet started to decrease, a lot of the resources, infrastructure, and assets were moved from Ukraine over to Ireland. And so naturally, Ireland started to, to receive the brunt of those attacks. And so if you look at the timeline, you can actually see that right around March timeframe where Ireland start to spike up about 2x increase day over day. Um, so there's a lot of different countries here that impact. In fact, countries that are not nowhere near these two um, conflicted or, uh, territories, Taiwan, they make a statement about the Russia-Ukraine invasion. They, have a, they hold a summit about this. And they received the largest number of daily attacks in all of APAC region on the day they made those remarks. Is that a coincidence? I think not. Uh, look at Belize, um, a country that you wouldn't think would have anything to do with this, but they made public remarks. And, and you know, right after those public remarks, boom, spike of DDoS attacks. Um, various other countries and organizations, even satellite communications as uh, US satellite providers start to offer services to Ukrainians because they don't have internet, attacks went up like 93% against satellite providers in the, in uh, North America. And so you can see how all of this, this geopolitical tension, this this changing of the, the, the landscape here, largely localized, but international impact. And so it's really intriguing to look at it, just how this all plays out. Um, and, and the deep dive article that we're talking and discussing about right here walks through all of those countries and it doesn't just focus on EMEA. We also talk about APAC with China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan and the dynamics there. We go into LATAM. LATAM has some very interesting perspectives. Colombian presidential election has a lot of uh, spikes and DDoS attacks coinciding with runoff elections and elections and protests. And it's really intriguing to see how just real world events just spill over into the, the cyber world. 
Um, and I would say that it's, it's true for any kind of cyber threat, not just DDoS, but it is really interesting to see this from our perspective. And it's interesting. I would encourage listeners to go and have a look on the report and see the graphs that have been created that track this over time, because you can see the spikes in the different countries there uh, far better than it's possible to describe in a podcast. Uh, but just to draw some inferences then about why this is happening, and I know it's very difficult to attribute and you know, DDoS attacks have become almost part of the fabric of doing business online. But is part of what lies behind this that actually it is a relatively easy and low risk strategy? So if you have a point to prove, whether that's a political one or a socioeconomic one, it doesn't cost a lot to do a DDoS attack. And actually, your risk of getting caught is pretty low, isn't it? Yes. Uh, unfortunately, it's free in many cases. Um Last report, I did a, a little bit of a case study in DDoS for higher platforms. Um, I actually pulled out my analysis machine. I logged into some of these. Um, and what I found was quite eye-opening. I used to think it was like at some point down about 20, 20 USD to launch a DDoS attack. But every single one of the sites that I visited, there was something like 19 of 350. Um, every single one of those had a free tier of DDoS attack that you can launch. And so they had anywhere between three to five different DDoS attacks that cost nothing. All you had to do was put an IP address in and hit a button. And the unfortunate side of this is sometimes those free attacks are enough to cause a problem. A large portion of DDoS attacks are geared towards gamers. Now, I know we're talking about geopolitics here, but you know we can't talk about DDoS and not talk about the gaming landscape. 80 to 85% of all DDoS attacks related to gaming. And so if you're looking at a free DDoS attack, these things are not large attacks. They're probably never going to trip some threshold in some service provider organization or countermeasures. Uh, they may not even trip any kind of anomalous traffic unless they are getting wise to the volumetric piece and have implemented safeguards. A little bit of extra traffic destined to a high-performing competition gamer where 50 frames per, per second versus 60 frames per second is enough to, to throw a match where there's $2 million on the line. Uh, it does not take a lot to be able to knock somebody out of a competition like that. And so having access to all of these free attacks, and it doesn't have to be related to gaming, you know, a phenomenon phenomena that we saw in the North America here was elementary education popped into the top 10 for industries targeted. And all of the DDoS attack factors against that industry were those free tier of attacks which is really insightful because if you look at any other industry, those same attack combinations don't exist. It's only against elementary education where, unfortunately, adolescent children can literally log into underground platforms, put an IP address in for their school or for whatever Zoom connection that they're on and hit a button without any crypto wallet, without an account, without any kind of adult supervision whatsoever and launch an attack against their school. And that's what we're seeing across the entire threat landscape, geopolitical aside, you know, you know, whether it's war, religion, politics, it's um, nihilism, it's activism, it's nation state, it's kids not wanting to go to school. It doesn't really matter the motivation. It's super, super easy to launch. And even the very large attacks that are purported to be launched from these services, the most I have ever seen is 6,000 USD to launch an attack. And that attack is purported to be very, very large. So yes, it's cheap, it's very accessible, um, and you don't need any kind of technical know-how to do it. So in very simple terms then, what actions should a CISO be taking now to increase the security of their organization? 
you know, I've said this many times and I might've said it on our last podcast, but just think of it. It's not a matter of if you're going to get attacked, it's when, and even if you're not the direct attack, if you're not in the direct path, maybe they're not going after you directly, but you know what, maybe your website is hosted in a data center. That's also hosting somebody else who does get attacked. What happens if that data center goes down? And so the big thing here is to, to just keep that in your mind. You need to look at this as a real threat. DDoS isn't something from 2010 that you can ignore. It's, it, it does have the benefit of DDoS does not last forever. DDoS is short-lived and you can all often recover from those and you can go, you can do emergency onboarding if there's a long running attack. Um, and so there are recourses here, but understand that you will experience DDoS at some point, either directly or indirectly. And if maintaining your always up presence, your always online presence is instrumental to your business, you absolutely need to think about, hey, I need to go out there and figure out what I need to do to make sure that DDoS attack does not impact my business. There are some organizations out there, like, for instance, a payment card processor. They might process five to 6,000 transactions per second. What happens if they go down for three minutes? It doesn't seem like a lot in the grand scheme of things, but how many thousands of transactions have they lost out on in those three minutes because their sites went down? And how many people shopping are going to wait around for five minutes for their the payment card system to come back online. They're probably not, right? They're going to drop their stuff and they're going to walk out the store. That's lost revenue. And so it's just from a CISO's perspective, you really need to evaluate what it is your business does, what's critical to your business. And if maintaining that uh, service assurance is intrinsic to your business, then it's no question. You absolutely need to engage somebody to get DDoS protection services. Richard Hummel from NetScout, offering some steps organizations can take to limit the damage of DDoS attacks. But as he says, even a short-lived disruption can be damaging to organizations that depend on a constant ability to do business online. That though is all for this episode of Security Insights. We'll be back in two weeks time when we'll be asking whether organizations are getting value for money from their cybersecurity spending, or whether we need a different approach. That will be online on October the 19th. Until then, you can, of course, catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, and on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.